0: Welcome back to the Demonland Podcast. My name is Andy and tonight Demonland Royalty Whispering Jack and I will be having a chat with Ian Munro, the author of Between the Flags, a book that chronicles the events during our 57 year premiership drought and tries to make sense of almost six decades of heartache. Later this week, the Demonland podcast will be previewing our qualifying final clash against the Swans, as well as taking a wider look at the 2022 final series as the D's attempt to defend their crown and go back-to-back. Back. But first, author Ian Munro. Our guest tonight is a writer with more than 30 years experience in journalism with the Herald and Weekly Times, writing in the Sun and Fairfax, writing for the Age. He's a former New York correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald and was press secretary to the Premier of Victoria from 1989 to 1992. He's the co-author of two crime volumes, Riding on Gravestones and Lives of Crimes, and a contributor to the footy in the 60s. He's a lifelong supporter of the Melbourne Football Club with the psychological scars to prove it. Welcome to the Demonland Podcast, Ian Munro.
1: Good to be here.
0: Um, Before we start, perhaps uh, you can give us a little bit of background on yourself and perhaps start with how you became a demon. Uh, Most of us had no choice in the matter. We were simply born into it. Uh, Was that the same with you?
1: That was exactly my story and I became a demon at a time when it was the easiest task in football. All you had to do was turn up each week and enjoy another victory. And I remember as a kid, look, I went to a state uh, school, primary school, the big thing On Mondays, we were allowed to wear our footy jumpers to school. And I remember one day after a Melbourne defeat, my mother insisting, you're wearing it today, you wear it when they win, you wear it when they lose. I just wasn't used to losing. And we we almost never lost. As Greg Hobbs says in the book, um, people would barrack against Melbourne hoping they'd lose because they never did. So I had a very easy time um, in primary school and I thought that would always be the case. Um, What the book is about is that that long process of adjustment, what caused Melbourne to fall off the perch in the second half of the 60s and why we stayed down so long. I wanted to explore all of those things that I'd wondered about uh, during adulthood. I can remember so many insults um, I got when I was at work in the 70s and in the 80s. I remember a sneering Essendon supporter at a lunch in 1985 saying, oh, Melbourne have been in the doldrums for as long as I can remember. And I thought at the time, you've got no idea, mate, how good we were, how dominant we were. But we were terrible. And 85, uh, well, that was the end of the Barassi era. So, yeah, it was a really difficult adjustment uh, if you took your football seriously, um, that period for Melbourne. And that's why I've got such regard for John Northy, and I hope that comes through in the book as well. I describe him as the man who gave the club back its self-respect, um, and that was one of the motives for writing the book. The primary one was to understand what went wrong. But I also wanted to correct a couple of misconceptions of history um, and pay due, pay due regard to John Northy. The issue of history, I'm concerned that Melbourne supporters born, um, any, anyone born from 1985 onwards is going to have this, they're going to be told that Hawthorne saved us from merging. And the importance of the merger chapter for me is to demonstrate how hard people fought for our independence, and also to point out that that vote um, is not reliable. There are so many irregularities in the way those numbers were constructed. Uh, I don't want to go into it all here. It's in the book, but I I would like people to be equipped with a proper understanding of what happened then.
0: Before we go on, we're going to have a bit of a conversation uh, rather than just a, a, a normal interview. But before we go on, we'll, we'll uh, mention the book uh, that we're going to be talking about. Uh, it's called Between the Flags. Um, uh, we'll, we'll mention later where where you can get it, but maybe now you can just also just say where
1: where we can find this book. Well, the big news for me is that it's now in the Demon Shop. Um, oh, fantastic! As of last week, which is fantastic. Um, it's also in Readings, uh, the Avenue Bookstore, which is Albert Park, Elstonwick, Richmond. Readings, of course, is all over Melbourne. I was in Shepparton yesterday delivering a second consignment up there, which is the heart of our um, country district. It's also in Bendigo in a shop called Bookish, if there's any country people listening. Um, and it's dotted throughout Melbourne at Beau Morris, Ashburton. So it's it's getting around town. And through your website as well. And through the website, Between the Flags 57.com. Very important, the 57. If you just go looking for Between the Flags, you'll end up at a swimsuit company.
0: Yes, I, I did that and uh, did get a nice swimsuit out of it.
1: Excellent. All
2: right. Well, w- welcome, Ian. Um, I think we should also emphasize that the title of the book is actually Between the Flags and then underneath Making Sense of 57 years of heartache and 57 years is definitely uh, true but I think if you're going to try to make sense of it and this is one of the things that I gained from the book um, and being a contemporary of yours because I started following the demons just at the right time, um, one of the themes of the first chapter is things aren't always as they seem. And uh, you start off with this wonderful uh, painting your picture of our two first premierships in the 50s, 55 and 56, and it's almost identical. There is a photo um, in one of the newspapers of uh, Noel McMahon, the late Noel McMahon, who recently sadly passed away, um, who was our captain in 55 and 56, and that There's this photo of him and there's a supporter who's having a great time apparently celebrating a premiership, but things aren't what they seem to be. So Mm. perhaps, um, why did you choose to start the book with that?
1: I started the book with the photos, really, (laughs) the idea of being surrounded by this gallery of demons. So for people who haven't seen the book, my father used to commemorate our premierships by picking out a few um, photographs he particularly liked and getting them from the newspaper offices as a glossy and they decorated our house. So not only did I get to go to the football every week, to all of those suburban grounds and see all these victories, then I was surrounded for the rest of the year by these images of success. So we had photos from 48, 55, 56, right through. Um, For me, they spoke to it, I guess... They capture the era, you know, because they look old. They're they're a measure of how long we'd been in the dark, all of that. Uh, the fact that football was different then. There's, there's no sponsor um, labels on the Guernseys. Everything's much simpler. There's no football fashion. It's a different world. And I was trying to convey the passage of time by referring back to them. Plus there was that intriguing story of that supporter who still lives in Windsor. He's still – I spoke to him earlier this year because I had to – I my editor asked me a couple of questions about, um, about where he'd been each of those mornings for that grand final, and I had to check with him. Um, it was just an interesting story that this same bloke was captured in the same situation on consecutive years, and then he met Noel McMahon, and Noel actually offered him a run with the Demon, a training run. Um, it's just a funny little story that... Uh, Captured something about the time. I was amazed when I rang him up. I thought he would offer me real insight as to whether supporters had stuck. And of course, later in the book, we we meet Jan Dimmick, who is a real stickler. Um, but it, I don't know if I should give you the punchline about that fella.
2: All right. Well, you might you might have to read the book, buy the book first, and then read it. But uh, it's it's a fascinating line, and it really, really to me it resonates. Um, One of the things that I've always felt about the Melbourne Football Club's downfall is I always believed that it began when Ron Barassi suddenly announced, I'm going off to Carlton or it began when Norm Smith was sacked in 1965, all post the 64 grand final, post that wonderful golden era of six premierships. but it suddenly dawned on me that really this period uh, of 57 years was almost predictable. It was like an experience I had recently. I was in the car park of a basketball stadium where my grandson had played and I was leaving and I saw this car trying to park next door to me and I could see this driver um, wasn't going to make it. And It was a car crash waiting to happen and in some ways um, Melbourne's success in that 11-year period, so we now go back 68 years, uh, but in that 11-year period there was an almost inevitability um, that we were going to fall. Um, It wasn't just going to be Barassi leaving or Smith sacking. There was something about the club um, that wasn't keeping pace with the time. So what do you make of that?
1: Well, that's entirely true. But I think the first thing to understand is in the 50s, there was only one football club had a social club. That was Collingwood. It had been licensed. They'd had a licensed social club since about 1941, which gave them an alternate source of revenue. The next club, I think, to twig to the value of a social club was Hawthorne who bought land next to the, the Glenfrey Oval or bought a couple of properties to start a social club in about 63 or 64. It was instantly profitable. By the end of the 60s, everybody had a social club or was building one except one club, and that was Melbourne. And the sort of – the shorthand version of this story is that the thing that helped us to be so successful, which was the occupation of the MCG and the relationship with the Melbourne Cricket Club – becomes our Achilles heel because we can't do those things those other clubs were able to do. You know, um, St Kilda knew what a drain the St Kilda Cricket Club was on the Saints, so they got out of the Junction Oval and went to Moorabbin partly to be closer to their supporters but also to free themselves from having to support cricket, which was not the moneymaker that football was. We never had that opportunity and that becomes the thing or one of the many things that drag us down. You mentioned Barassi going and, and Smith sacking. The other thing that happened in 65 was Richmond came to the MCG. So that took away one of our unique uh, or one of the things that was unique to us in recruiting players. We were no longer the only club at the G. And Richmond at that time were very aggressive in country recruiting. They, there's a telling quote from Graham Richmond in the book where of the 44 players on Richmond's list... Only 12 of them were local boys. The rest of them had been hauled out of the country with um, some form of checkbook recruiting.
2: Right. And and during this period of the 50s, early 60s, you had Melbourne being capable of securing the best players because the Melbourne Cricket Ground was a lure. Um, all of those things. But we were still very much part of the amateur Uh, seen in sport, which went through football, cricket, Olympic games, tennis, uh, perhaps golf was uh, a little bit of an outlier there because it it was so much connected with America, which led the way.
1: Sports followers these days would have no idea of what a controversy professionalism was. Mm. It split the tennis world, I think it probably split golf, but that went much more quickly into professionalism because it was dominated by Americans. But, yeah, sports like tennis, um, they were divided for years and the Olympic movement has struggled with the whole concept of professionalism as well. So you're right, there was a huge change, not just in football but in sport, and it put us at a big disadvantage because we couldn't adapt to it.
2: Yep, uh Hassa Mann, I think, was an example in the book. Uh, He could have gone to a number of different clubs and was offered decent money, which in these days uh, you can't even talk about 50 quid or something like that. That's $100. Um, I'm not sure if that was the figure that uh, Hassa was offered, but he he went to Melbourne essentially for nothing because of the connection with the MCC. And I can remember... Seeing Hassa interviewed in his first pre-season, uh, he'd just come down from Mourbeen and you could, he was such a country boy, uh, you could barely understand what he was saying in the interview. And, uh, you know, he was being interviewed by such luminaries as Lou and Jack Dyer, so you can imagine uh, what sort of conversation that was. But uh, he became a very successful businessman and... That was in part due to connections, I think, through the Melbourne Cricket Club.
1: Blue Adams talks about how being at Melbourne transformed him as an individual. He described himself as this sort of struggling um, working-class boy in Windsor who had his life turned around by being at Melbourne, by being coached by Norm Smith. Um, So it did have a transformative effect on people. Interesting when you talk about the professional era and and Hassa coming in, I think Hassa was offered a car to go to Geelong and he he knocked it back. But at the other end of his career, he wanted a contract for two Hmm. years and Melbourne told him, we don't do contracts. And he was basically sent on his way. He went over to Perth, ended up representing Western Australia in an interstate game and coached Perth to a premiership. So that's what we were tossing aside because we wouldn't offer contracts, we wouldn't compete in that way.
2: Yeah, and, and we did. I can remember losing players far too young. Stuart Spencer uh, was our captain and best and fairest winner in those 55-56 in premiership years, and he was off at the end of 56. Uh, Donnie Williams left, Bob Big Bob Johnson. Uh, these were some of the great names of the club leaving far too early in their careers. Um, Bob left the club in the early 60s and he was still a decent player in the VFA ten years later. Uh, so
1: And still smoking at three-quarter time. Yeah,
2: exactly. And, and uh, so it was quite remarkable that we were able to remain a strong club for quite a number of years after that uh, but still... The there had to be a period of time where it all caught up with us, and it eventually did. I think probably even before the sixty four grand final, and I think you you mentioned in the book that um, maybe we we lucked it out winning in sixty four.
1: Yeah, that's that's certainly Bluey Adams' attitude, and it's John Lord's view as well. Um, Bluey goes through the final series, says the best two teams were Essendon and Geelong. Geelong knocked out Essendon and then in the wet Collingwood were able to knock out Geelong and we got to play Collingwood twice, having caned them in the first final by about 80 points and then sneaking in in the grand final. It's one we stole. Maybe 1963 was stolen from us when Barassi mm. was rubbed out on the eve of the final series but, yeah, we we did pinch one there.
2: Yep, and uh, really, one of the one of the things that struck me in the book was I think Norm Smith recognised that uh, at the end of '64, and he he was making comments like, "We really need to do a little bit more if we're going to remain strong." So he he must have realised that we're not uh, recruiting well enough that there there's something something more that we need and in effect for the next few years things happened on the ground in terms of recruiting that actually worked against us and I think in the book you describe the scenario where we were probably our own worst enemy in that we ended up voting for country zoning so perhaps we can introduce that subject which looms very large
1: in the book too. Yeah, that is the big change. Look, one thing I think you can take out of Melbourne's history is that we were so powerful that the rules of recruiting were changed to bring us back to the field. That's what country zoning was about, not just us. Collingwood and Essendon as well dominated recruiting from country players. If you looked at the 1960 premiership side, half of it came out of the bush. They were either directly recruited from the country or like Barassi and, Bob Johnson and John Lord, they followed their fathers who'd been country players recruited to Melbourne. Um, So country zoning was a controversy for about 10 years and it was essentially an attempt to even up the competition because the power clubs, as Ron Joseph talks in the book, just dominated it. And clubs like North Melbourne, Fitzroy, Footscray, South Melbourne would go out into the country and discover that Any decent country kid had already been signed up by Melbourne or Collingwood. So they wanted to make the competition more even and that's where country zoning comes into it. And it is in some respects the most important part of the book, not because it was the biggest factor in bringing Melbourne down, but because I think it's been underestimated. And if you talk to anyone of the time, they'll say, the problem with country zoning is the zones were supposed to rotate and they didn't. And that is true, but I think if you read the chapter or the chapters on that, I think you'll see that the way the zones were assigned in the first place suggests they weren't assigned at random, at least not totally, and that there was some contrivance arranged at it. the fact that the best zones went to either the poorest clubs or to Carlton, which was the club organising the whole thing and driving it throughout um, there's just so many coincidences there. Then you look at what Collingwood got. Unlike Melbourne, Collingwood hadn't fallen off the perch in 1967 when they brought this in. They were still playing grand finals and they were given the absolute worst zone and most difficult to administer of the lot in the Western Border League. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's it raises a lot of questions why those zones were assigned and then you see this flood of talent go into Hawthorne like Lee Matthews, Peter Knights, Kelvin Moore, Chris Mew. It just transforms Hawthorne. They go from a confirmed salad dweller to a powerhouse. And Footscray as well, who had been winning four games a year for about three years, within three or four years they've had people like Bernie Quinlan, Barry Roundy and Salmon go straight in from the bush from their country zone in um, the La Trobe Valley and they're knocking on the door of the finals. They don't actually make it. Um, they don't ever have the money or the stability or the, or the continuity of coaching that Hawthorne had, but they still they still gain enormously. Essendon struggle for years under it until they get that platoon of people like Tim Watson, Merv Nagel, Shane Hurd all come out of the Wimmera at the same time. Within five years, they're back in the finals and competing for premierships. Our best player, we waited for the, almost the end of country zoning to get our best player out of it, and that's Gary Lyon. We also had Peter Keenan and um, and Rod Grinder who played 100 games, but clubs like Footscray and Hawthorne, they had 1,500 game players come out of it. Seven members of Hawthorne's team of the century came out of there. Gary Lyon is the only one member of our team of the century to come out of our country zone. So they were wildly different, and... There's one thing in the book that people may overlook and it's a reproduction of a newspaper article from the Herald a few days after the zones were assigned. You can see which zone each club has got. Take a look at the population of 16 to 20-year-olds in those zones. Don't just look at the number of recruits they've produced in the previous three years, although that's wildly different, but look at the population. Our population was one-third of the biggest zones. So your talent pool is a fraction of what other people have. So that was enormously influential to me. But also we had a problem with our metropolitan zones in that they were—they the, tended to be older suburbs. And the one thing that came through that was really quite a smart thought by St Kilda was they realised that footballers grew where young families were. Older established suburbs, families are older, Um, there's fewer kids running around St Kilda were looking to go out into the southeast because that was a growth area and unfortunately for them it was Hawthorne who got that zone but that was an insight which they had and it was smart planning our suburbs like Murrumbina and Bentley tended to be older and more established and so we weren't getting a lot out of either our metropolitan zone or our country zone
2: that's right and and um I do recall that at one point in time in the early 70s our metropolitan zone was expanded to take in the city of Chelsea yep. and that was virtually one or two years after Hawthorne had recruited Lee Matthews and his brother Kelvin and, um, and Mike Moncrief, under goal kicker I think at Hawthorne. Yep. Uh, these guys, we were, we were pretty stiff. Uh, these guys all went to Hawthorne and then... A year or two later, we get their zone and it took probably almost 10 years
1: to produce Gerard Healy. Um, we got David Neitz eventually too out of that yeah. Edith Vale-Aspendale area. But, yeah, that's right. It was bad timing. But what happened was that part of Hawthorne's zone in the first instance should have been included in the, um, in the metropolitan area. And after five years of country zoning, that was soaked up. And that's why we were pushed a little further south they lost a little bit of the Mornington Peninsula and they were given a large chunk of Footscray zone in West Gippsland as compensation. So they won at both ends.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think there there is an element there of perhaps uh, not being quite honest when we were told at the beginning of country zoning that there was going to be a rotation after five years and that, you know, if you miss out. First time, then you might get a strong zone the next time. Um, they told us a lot of stories that perhaps turned out to be lies and And one of them that I picked up in the book, but I, I'm not sure that it's mentioned all that much, but um, but uh, we, were, we were told, I think, at the beginning of country zoning that players couldn't be recruited just to play in the under-19s uh, and then a few years later there were plenty of country players playing in the under-19s.
1: There was a concern at one stage that players could be warehoused. So if you had, say, a multiplicity of, of good, promising young kids, you didn't necessarily use them all, but you wouldn't clear them to other clubs because clubs could still clear country kids in a deal. Um, I remember seeing some articles complaining about Carlton warehousing kids in Bendigo and they wouldn't clear any of them, but they weren't playing them either. So at some point in the 70s, and it's not clear, I think it's around 76, 77, the concept of junior lists was introduced and you had to nominate the kids you wanted. And if a, if a young player was not on that junior list, they were fair game. And that's how Alistair Clarkson, who come, came from Caniva, which was in Essendon's Zone, ended up at North Melbourne. And I think it's how Craig Scholl ended up going to North Melbourne as well. And it's how Adrian Gleeson ended up going to Carlton when he was zoned to Fitzroy. Um, Gleeson was on Fitzroy's junior list. They couldn't convince him to come down to play. He wanted to finish high school before he came to Melbourne. So they dropped him off the list and Carlton swooped. We tried to swoop as well. Um, Melbourne and Geelong both approached him, but eventually it was um, Carlton who snared him. So that was one of the... Country zoning was constantly changing. And the other thing is there were always changes at the margin because populations in the country would would shift, towns would come on hard times, their footy team would merge or they'd move into another league. So there were changes and sometimes entire leagues merged. So there were changes at the margin um, and the system did change a little bit over time. But as you say, it never functioned as it was supposed to.
2: And Essendon supporters would be really feeling bad. Now they they missed out on Clarkson before his career started. Exactly. And they've just missed out on him as a coach. So, so um, well.
1: There might have been a central pen, sentimental pull if they'd actually had him on their junior list yeah, back then.
2: Precisely. All right, so we get then on into the 70s and we've still got country zoning um, but there are other things at work at Melbourne where we're really not performing well as a club. We've got coaches coming and going. Um, Ian Ridley looked very promising as a coach at the beginning and had a lot of support and he didn't last. Um, we had a foray into recruiting players from interstate with, well, we, we had Graham Malloy who I I thought he was a terrific footballer, uh, recruited in the late 60s and then there was gentlemen... Jim Tilbrook, um, who, you know, was a bit of a messiah and I I think that was one of the complexes that Melbourne had. We were always looking for another Ron Barassi, another messiah to come and lift the club Um, because initially when we dropped down in the mid-60s, we we were all thinking, well, it's going to be short term, you know, somebody will come along and lift us again but it never, never happened.
1: I thought it would take two years, but then mm. I was a kid, I didn't have a clue. Well, that's um Tilbrook, yeah, the, the impact of Tilbrook, according to Dick Seddon, was more significant than the fact that we recruited a fellow who wasn't the player we needed him to be. It also discouraged the MCC from supporting any further recruiting of that sort. Uh, they just wouldn't um, write the checks. So that's that's a an enduring impact of the... Um, the fact that Jim, look, the thing is too, he had a crook back, as I understand it. He had to stand out for several months even when he first arrived. I did see him rescue us at the Arden Street Oval in his first year, two mighty punts. He was a magnificent kid mm. but he just couldn't get the ball enough. And um, someone told me that Jim said to said to them, the problem for Melbourne is I only ever played three good games in my life and Melbourne were there to see every one of them.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, he 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 did play in about six premierships with Sturt. Yeah, exactly. And it was probably past his prime when he, when when we took him, actually. But uh, and then we went on to um, Bobby Skilton era and came within a, as Rex Hunt would say, a poofteenth of making the finals, and only to miss out that fateful day at Collingwood. We're all watching us beat Collingwood, and then the Collingwood fans are laughing at us because. We were relying on Carlton to beat Footscray and they drew.
1: Mm, That's right. But on the other hand, that defeat confirmed Collingwood as the wooden spooner for the first time in their history. So that was my compensation. They were laughing at us. I was laughing at them. Mm.
2: Well, there you go. And uh, the following couple of years weren't too bright for the club after almost making it.
1: No, we, well... Bobby Skilton's next year was just didn't live up to expectations and then we we took a turn to an experiment with someone off the committee and Dennis Jones. It was a disaster. Look, the club had no direction throughout that period. Um, Stephen Smith says he doesn't know what the club thought they were doing when they appointed Dennis Jones as uh, as coach. It was a disaster. It was probably as bleak, maybe not quite as bleak as the the most recent difficult period we've been through. I think one of the most important things in the book is the, the thing or the comments Todd Viney makes regarding what we did when Mark Neild was sacked. He, he said the footy people looked at one another and said, we cannot go on just sacking coaches. And they had to get much more fundamental in how they approached a rebuild. And in a way, you know, what we were doing with the Bailey-Neill period is just what you were talking about in the 70s, but we didn't ever have that process of sitting down and working out, as Todd said, what do you want as a club, what do you want us to be? Simon Goodwin in his comments after the premiership, he makes references to Todd's work at the club as well and I put those two, they're in it's in different chapters, but I put those two passages together and think there was clearly some very serious work done at Melbourne prior to the recruitment of Paul Ruse in terms of looking at what we wanted to be as a club. And uh, the one part of the book I didn't want to write was about Dean Bailey and Mark Neild. partly because I was overseas when Dean was appointed but also because it ended so badly. I wanted to write about the merger to clarify that history. I wanted to understand about what went wrong for Melbourne but I really didn't want to go into that period at all but I – I'm really glad I did because Don McClarty is very frank in the things he says in that chapter and I think Todd gives us tremendous insight in his remarks at the end of the chapter. And that's obviously why I ended the chapter with Todd because I thought his his remarks were so um, so prescient and, and so profound.
2: Yeah, I think he talked about you've got to have the right DNA mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't have it in the... Seventies, uh, we certainly didn't have it in that very bleak period, um, uh, the Bailey Neild period, the, the the whole that whole era. You were you were lucky to be away. I I have to tell you. So so um, we managed to make it out of there. So how did how did that happen?
1: Well, it it is the process of sinking so low, you can only go up. And it was the realisation, I think, at the club that they had sunk that low. But the other element is, in contrast to the introduction of country zoning that was about knocking us down, we had become such a drain on the competition um, that the AFL had to build us up. So the, the very process that originally was used against us by the administration was then reversed. They couldn't afford to have a club that was struggling so badly that gates were down, you know, ratings were down, the whole commercial element of the competition was being compromised and they offered the support to get Ruse in, uh, to get Peter Jackson. They offered us help with the rebuild and that's the other element of it which um, unfortunately we weren't quite able to fix ourselves although the things Todd talks about, wanting to have an identity and wanting to have a known way of, of playing the game, that's all really fundamental and it's incredibly important. But equally, we had support uh, from the AFL and that's the one thing that, um, that stands out.
2: Right. And uh, I guess at the end of it all, we still don't have a social club. Is that right? Uh, I, I think... If you listen to the Demonland podcast, that's a common uh, issue that's brought up. Does it matter now that we don't have a social club? It certainly did, obviously, in the 60s when, and, and 70s when the game became professional and commercial and we still lived off the smell of an oily rag and were very much still part of the MCC that didn't want to open the purse strings. Um, so does it matter now?
1: Probably doesn't matter commercially. I mean, where our merchandise budget is, or our merchandise revenue has gone through the roof, for example, I always used to spend at least $200 a year on merchandise on the basis that if every member did, um, that would be an exponential increase in revenue. There are so many sources of revenue now through sponsorship and everything else that a social club doesn't matter in terms of revenue. But having been to Princess Park, having been to Waverley where Hawthorne have their museum... Having been to the hangar, which is, okay, it's admittedly soulless, but it's got, it's got the trappings of past success there. Having been to these other clubs' uh, centres and having been to Collingwood uh, t- to meet um, Michael Roberts, their historian, I've seen their halls of fame, if you like, and it's a place where supporters can go and at least dip into the history. You don't necessarily have to have a social club, although I think that would be an advantage depending on where it was cited. But the idea that you have a headquarters where you can display your history and uh, recall past glory, I think that is important. And, you know, it's terrible. I went into Princess Park and there's this wall of glass with 16 gleaming premiership cups. If you went to Melbourne, you'd see one at the moment because most of them belong to the MCC. I think it's important we have something... Some sort of hall of fame, some headquarters, where you have that display. Go to Hawthorne. I mean, six there's something like thirteen premiership cups on display there. It's um, it's actually awesome to see them all together, and you can't do that unless you have somewhere to to show them off.
2: Mm. And Hawthorns are all within our li- living memory too. So, so that's you know, at least at Melbourne we've we've got them going back to 1900. Uh, but I think. I'd like to just go back to one particular period of time, uh, 1980, 81, when Ron Barassi did come back and we broke our ties with the MCC. Was that the start of our new era?
1: Absolutely. Until then, Melbourne hadn't had any autonomy. They couldn't make their own decisions about recruiting. They had to get approval from the MCC to do that. So that's the start um, and obviously you also see at that point a renewed energy into recruiting and player development. The um, Norm Smith squad that Rod Grinter and Gary Lyon came through was created. Uh, they, Melbourne were one of the last to develop a squad for country recruits. They had something going for city kids, I think about 75. The country boys came in in 78. Under Ray Jordan you do see a flood of talent developed, people coming out of that country area, like Adrian Batterston, Chris Connolly. Um, so that was the start. But equally, when John Northey got there, there was also some fantastic recruiting done in terms of picking up interstate recruits. So it, it wasn't all a matter of Northy inheriting what was done from 81 through 85, but certainly that was the start of of it becoming a serious football club again. That's when I think we got fed income and we got impatient and said something's got to be done about it.
2: Yeah, because I, I I can remember um, Warren Dean, Todd Viney and Earl Spaulding all coming in one year. That was like a bonanza that we hadn't seen before at Melbourne.
1: That's a point that Dick Seddon makes uh, about the Tilbrook recruiting as well. It, it's not a messiah. It's not one person. You need three, four, five um, recruits coming in at a time. The first time I saw Dick Seddon speak was at the Heritage Commission inquiry into Waverley Park. There was this push for Waverley after the AFL had disposed of it as a stadium. There was a push to have it preserved because it was a, a heritage item. And one of the arguments made at the Heritage Commission hearings was that it was important because Hawthorne had played there. Hawthorne had been enormously successful and they had devised a scheme of play that had elevated them into a golden era because they played at Waverly. And Dick Seddon was a witness for the AFL and he got up. This was in about 2001, so it's relatively recent. He he got up there and he said, utter nonsense. Hawthorne had that golden era because they had these players coming in, four, five, six at a time, walking into the club one year after another. And that's really what Melbourne was getting when you we had that interstate influx that you're talking about. If you're going to build a dynasty, you don't do it with one player or two players. You need a really smart recruiting over an extended period of time. That's why I think we've got to give thanks to Jason Taylor because his strike rate has been amazing. Um, and that's, you know, going back to 2013 onwards. I actually wrote a piece for... Um, Rowan Connolly's website, Footiology, in defence of Mark Neald because and there's not a lot to, to be said but Mark was the person who nominated Jason Taylor as a possible recruiter for Melbourne and he nailed that.
2: Mm. And I, I think apart from the Neald uh, appointment as coach, I think we did manage to get some pretty good personnel into the club at, at the time like Jason Taylor I think um, missing uh, the fitness. That's right. Um, for, and and there were others who came. In, I mean, Todd Viney arrived at around that time as well. So we did have an influx of people who helped us through the ensuing years, um, the transition from Paul Ruse to uh, Simon Goodwin and on to our ultimate First achievement after 57 years, an unbelievable premiership which I still can't get over that evening sitting at home in isolation um, watching that magnificent game.
1: It wasn't the least bit how I expected it to be, partly because we were in lockdown. But um, I don't think anyone's won a flag like that before. You know, people talk about... Carlton coming from seven goals down in 1970 and, and sneaking over the line, but we've come from three goals down and, and just romped home by a record margin for the club. It was a, an astounding result, just wonderful.
2: How many times have you watched the replay? Uh, not that often actually,
1: um, probably half a dozen. I think there are people who, have, who would outdo me by a long stretch. Some oh. people tell me they watch it after every defeat, So this year that I've been watching it, I've watched it half a dozen times just to cheer themselves up, let alone those times they watch it for the fun of it. But, yeah, I've only seen it half a dozen times. I have kind of moved on and I'm looking for the next one.
2: Yes, I think it's due. uh, Another month's time uh, may may bring it but I I did have a – I've got this personal thing on Christmas Day, December the 25th last year, which was exactly three months to the day after that great victory. It was the first time – I actually watched the replay in its fullness Uh, and it was up on the Gold Coast and I invited a few of my mates along and we, at at the exact moment uh, in time, three months later, you know, we had our party pies and sausage rolls and a few drinks and celebrated um, once again in the true way it should with a whole lot of Melbourne supporters around you.
1: What's your favourite moment?
2: The bounce of the first ball and it lasted for <laughs> about two and a half hours.
1: Okay. My favourite bit is that goal of Petracka's, but the fu- in the uh, third quarter. But the favourite bit of it is the block that Cosie Pickett puts on Josh Dunkley and basically upends him and it just wins that fraction of time uh, for Petracker. So there's that and competing with that is that moment when Gus, having kicked a goal at one end, makes a spoil in a marking contest at the other and ends up flat on his back and winded. Uh, those, those moments just stay in the memory. Yeah, and
2: like, like the moment in which we kicked three goals because that was a mere moment.
1: Yeah, it was. It's amazing.
2: Mm. Uh, Andy, have you got anything to say about that moment?
0: uh my well, favorite day. well my favorite part of the day was that minute of madness and it wasn't just one minute of madness it was that minute of madness at right at the uh end of the quarter but we also had another minute of madness earlier in the quarter as well because we kicked uh, i think we kicked three goals in in just over a minute as well at, at, at one particular stage so yeah it, it's a, such a memorable day. Um, obviously never forget it. Uh, It was my first, my first, you guys had lots of tastes uh, earlier on, uh, but that was my first taste of true success. It's something I'll never forget.
2: And isn't it amazing that after 57 years, one minute lives in your memory so
1: vividly? I guess it was just such a wonderful minute. Um, And that's why I went back to speak to Clyde Laidlaw. He was in four premierships. So I wanted to ask, well, I did ask Clyde, what Was there anything like this in your time? And fascinating that he played in the previous game, won by 73 points, but he said it was nothing like this. There'd been nothing. It was a unique experience. And probably every premiership's different. And, you know, what I learned from digging into the club's history, you see that run in the 50s and 60s and looking back, it appears inevitable. But within those games and within those seasons, there were times when it could all have fallen apart, like round 17 in 64 when we were almost knocked out of the finals or that game in 59, the second quarter in 1959, which Blue Adams talks about in the book, which Barassi turns that game around when we're three goals down in the second quarter. So it looks inevitable looking back and when you look at the record book, but none of them were inevitable. They all had to be won and they were all hard fought Um, and that, That's also the reason I took the approach to the premiership season the way I did in the book. You may not quite understand it. I'd finished the book in 2020 and I decided I wasn't going to publish until we'd won a flag. So in 2021, I kept a diary. I did my own match reports each week and I recorded what people were saying about the club, what they were saying about the competition, how it was unfolding because I wanted to capture that and hold that mood in the finished chapter, I didn't want to write about a premiership through the filter of having won it, so I hope that uncertainty comes through in those chapters as well, and that nervousness. Um, nothing was nothing was ever guaranteed, and that's unfortunate. Well, that's probably the great thing about sport, and that's the attitude we have to take to this year. Nothing's guaranteed, and everything's uncertain until it's decided. How
0: confident were you at the beginning of the year? If you're taking a diary, did you have some inkling that uh, this year, that year, might have been our year?
1: A very faint one, but I'd kept the diary in 2020 oh. and 2019 as well, <laughs> because I I decided in 2018 the title of the book. Um, 2019's diary didn't continue for very long, <laughs> and uh, 2020, well, yeah, I had to keep it for 22 weeks. I was I was confident we were going to win one though. If it hadn't been last year, I thought it would have been this year. I was, I was sure we would win one. And I, I remember when I interviewed Stephen Smith, at the end of the interview I did admit to him, I'm not publishing this until uh, we win a flag. And he did look at me like I was a bit of a weird dude and he'd possibly <laughs> wasted his, his hour talking to me. Um, but shortly after that the club announced their strategic plan and it was to play finals every year for four years, it was to make a profit every year, and it was to win a flag within four years. So I didn't feel quite so um, quite so stupid. But even so, I didn't tell anyone I was working on the book because I've had enough ridicule in my life being yes. being a Melbourne supporter. I didn't want to invite more by saying, I'm writing a book, and guess what? I'm not going to publish it until Melbourne Football Club win a flag. And that just would have, I don't know, invited howls of derision. Um but, yes, I was confident by the time 2021 came around that we were close. Have you been keeping a diary this year? No. No, Between mm-hmm. the Flags means what it means. Yeah. It's actually that story. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think that the next book that gets written about Melbourne would be called Triplets. <laughs> <laughs> Quadruplets, <laughs> And it would cover 39, 41, 55, 57 and who knows what comes next.
2: But um, I, I don't think you can go th- through those 57 years without mentioning some people. Um, we did have certain players who made it all worthwhile going to the games even though we weren't travelling well and you couldn't go through that period without mentioning Robbie Flower and his contribution over those years. It really was something to behold just to see Robbie. Uh, it was unfortunate that he didn't taste premiership success, although it at the end did play in a couple of finals um and they were, that was an exciting time too and it started with a final match against South Melbourne or Sydney Swans as they were that already become by then and well next week it's a return Sydney Swans so but but uh, I don't think we could forget players like Robbie Flowers Flower, and there were others too um over that period who who were our favourites, um, and and one of my personal favourites was a guy called Greg Park, who passed away on the day of the grand final, and and that sort of sums up um, a lot of the sadness of the period of fifty seven years. But there were quite a few highs. I, I think you, you've you've made it quite clear that it wasn't all misery.
1: That's right. That's another one of the myths I, I wanted to demolish. Look, just talking about individual players, Stan Elves was fantastic to watch. Mm. He was almost the equivalent of Robbie. I, st- I remember when I got my first 35mm camera, I just ran through so many rolls of film, shooting Stan Elves flying along the wing at the MCG. Ray Biffin was a cult hero before we even knew that was a, that was a thing. Uh, Gary Hardiman was brilliant, Steve Smith. Th- there were many very fine players, Greg Wells, who were terrific players who really bled for the Guernsey. But they were just unlucky to be there at that particular time um, when the club wasn't equal to them.
2: Yeah, and you could mention Brad Green uh, more yeah. more recently and, and, of course, Jimmy, um, Brian Wilson, Peter Moore, one of Brownlow at the
1: club. Yeah, and I guess we shouldn't also forget... Um, And it was interesting, Paul Ruse made a point of messaging Jack Trengove and Jack Grimes after the Premiership, in his words, because they weren't there but they were part of it. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, They'd been part of the rebuild. They hadn't, for various reasons, been able to sustain it. But, yeah, I mean, we do respect those people who, you know, I'm loathe to – Dump too much on the Goulburn Valley because there were people who came out of there who were who were good players, but they just, we just didn't get enough, even though there were many terrific blokes and and um, accomplished footballers who came came up during that time.
2: Right, and and I suppose we we should spare a thought for the twenty two players who went down to Geelong, um, some something like ten or eleven years ago, and came home with the 186 syndrome and, and that was a, a very tough period of time for the club.
1: Yeah, I was boycotting Cadenia uh, Park at that point because so much money had been thrown into it and they still treated you like cattle when you got down there. Um, so I watched that game on, on television and somehow the TV remained intact. Um, that was just a terrible day. Um, The only thing comparable was that day in the 70s when Fitzroy did something very similar to us. Uh, Well, that was the low point and uh, in a way that's when things, they don't quite start to turn around because we lose Dean Bailey after that. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. What do you say about it?
2: Yeah, well, I'm still boycotting uh, Geelong at the moment and, in fact, my last visit to Geelong was the day we played or were due to play, I think, whatever it was, an ANSET cup or, or whatever cup it was, and I turned up to the ground and I knew there was something wrong when I found a parking spot right outside the ground. And it was the day that uh, one of the pipes under the ground had, had busted and the the whole wing was flooded and they called the game off. And uh, so it was a very comfortable drive home from Geelong knowing that we hadn't been belted um, and I haven't been back there since.
1: Well, my last two visits were a win and a draw, so maybe no. I should keep it at that for the moment.
2: Yeah, but from memory, that draw, did Did they come back from a long way behind?
1: I can't remember. I remember we just sneaked out of there and got into the finals mm. um, in one of Neil's years. We didn't go any further, unfortunately. Neil also is someone, I mean, he's, he's much respected, uh, for the work he's done with um, MND, but Neil was also terrific for the club. Yep. Uh, that period, I actually know this for a fact, Chris Connolly said to me, and he, it's not true, I checked the quote, Chris Connolly said, Melbourne won more games from 1987 to 2006 than any other club in the competition. And I was tempted to use it in the book, so I had to check. That meant I had to go through every club and see, count how many games they won which is easier than it sounds because there's a thing called AFL Tables that Mm. has this stuff, but it's still an arduous task. It wasn't true, but it was almost the case. In that period of 20 years, we won as many games as everyone except maybe Essendon and Carlton, and we were very close to them as well. That is how good we were. We were, you know, that was a terrific period. It had its ups and downs. I did say at one point I thought... The demons should have been renamed the Heartbreakers because they'd get us so close and then we'd yeah. fail but apart from not winning a Premiership, we were as successful in that period as any club in the competition and we were an equal to Essendon and Carlton, who were the powerhouses of the time, but for that one thing and that's what diminishes it and there was always disappointment at the end of the season when you were knocked out of the finals i re- I remember losing to Essendon in a final. At Alistair Nicholson on one ankle, trying to prevent the winning goal. Um, you know these these years ended badly, and that's the fifty seven years of heartache. But within it, there was real achievement, and there was excitement, and an emotional roller coaster.
0: Speaking of uh, heartbreak, um, there was uh, your book might have only been twenty three years. Um, we got into the finals finally after twenty three years in nineteen eighty seven. Uh, missed you know missed the grand final by. smallest of margins. Um, What what are your memories about uh, sort of 1987 then getting into the grand final in 88 and being blown away?
1: I didn't cry after the grand final last year. A lot of people have admitted to weeping. The closest I've been to weeping was at the Western Oval in 1987 when we made the finals. When it was finally clear we'd, we'd, we'd beaten footscray moderately comfortably and then the news came through about the other game and I got a bit teary then. That was just such a big day and then to go out the next week take on North Melbourne who were a powerhouse. They'd been winning flags um, in, in the mid to late 70s. I think they played in five consecutive grand finals. They had a real name and at the end of the game some North Melbourne official described it as the most embarrassing day of his life. It was fantastic. I remember half-time um, in that game, we were six goals in front. We ended up winning it, I think, by 21 goals. 118 points. Okay, 20 <laughs> goals. Um, and that was our first final. It was unbelievable. And then the next week, we go up against yeah. Sydney. And I I can't remember, the the banner was something about the Battle of... A, a tale of two cities, or something like that, and then to flog them by ten or eleven goals. Um, and I mentioned in the book, you know, there's a moment when Jared Healy's lining up for goal, and I called out, "If you miss this, we'll let you come back." And someone said, "We don't, we don't have him back." Mm-hmm. Um, it was great to stop his run. I, I, I must admit, I think if he'd stayed, we might have won that elusive flag mm-hmm. because he was a terrific player. Didn't win a flag with Sydney might have won one with us if he'd stuck around. But 87, I don't see that as a missed opportunity. At the end of that game, Robbie Flower had a broken collarbone, Brian Wilson had a broken collarbone, and Hawthorne, for all their um, celebration at the end of that game, they were destroyed the next week by Carlton. Um, I know Melbourne supporters like to say the momentum would have carried us through, and maybe it would have. Maybe John Northey could have worked some magic, but given the – the injuries we had at the end of that game, I find it hard to really sustain the thought that we were going to win the flag. The one that went missing is either 1990 or 94, mm. um, although Russell Robinson is 98, is the one that tortures him. Um, but, yeah, in there, there, there should have been a premiership in there. We were just disadvantaged in a lot of different ways. The Junction Oval was a problem. You know, the facilities were appalling. Um, you know, Stephen Newport... He's there as a coach and a ball of maggots falls out of the ceiling and lands on his computer. Um, Craig Cameron, first thing he had to do every day was clean the possum droppings off his desk when he got in. Uh, The place was a pit. Shouldn't have been allowed to exist. Should have been completely gutted and rebuilt. Um, And as the players say, it was not a place where you wanted to stick around.
0: I mean, it wasn't until I think... Pre-season, either twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty-one, that we were actually training on a full-size MCG-size
1: ground. Well, there's that too. Look, oh, gee, there's so many things you can talk about. One of the one of the th- this is completely off to the side, mm-hmm. but I'm going to chuck it in there. In the chapter about the merger, I I do try to be very fair to Ian Ridley because I think he understood the problems the club had and he was trying to make a quantum leap into the present. Normally, you make a quantum leap into the future, but Melbourne was so far behind the eight ball. He was trying to get us a quantum leap into the present. But if he'd taken us to Glen Ferry, how long would you have stayed there? That was not a viable long term training base. Um, and we see that in the fact we've rebuilt Gosh's Paddock um, and reconfigured that. Not only were we not training on an MCG sized ground, we were training at Alstonwick Park one pre season. When I interviewed Neil, uh, for the Demon Magazine in 98, we were at Caulfield Grammar. We were all over the place. You never knew where our pre-season was going to be.
2: Well, that suited me fine because my office was in Glen Utley Road, Elstonwick, <laughs> and I could uh, drop down after work to watch uh, either um, the boys at Elstonwick Park or at Corfield Grammar, which was probably less than a kilometre always. I'm glad uh, it worked out for you, Jack. It, it did. Uh, but... I can remember one day at Elstonwick Park the news came through that um David Schwartz had injured his knee at Lavington on the weekend before. It took it took a couple of days for the news to get out, I think. But uh, I can recall sitting at Elstonwick Park and saying, Where's David Schwartz? And um you know, the bad news was disclosed. So it's not these those days were not like today because you can read it on demon land before it happens. Hmm.
1: The ne- The news of Schwartz's first knee, I think, took about three days to be confirmed. Hmm. Um, this, the third one, or the second one we all saw, those of us who were at the hmm. ground, the third one was pretty much immediate as well. But the first one, yeah, it took several days to learn what was happening.
2: Right, um, a moment's pause in well, memory
1: of David Schwartz's <laughs> yes, knee. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, what well,
2: could have been. <laughs> well, I, look, I, I just want to pl- pay tribute to one player that we haven't mentioned, Jeff White, um, and he was a terrific player, and he came over here from Fremantle, and I think it's a blessing that he did because for those of you who, and we all like looking to the future, I think he's got about four boys who are all showing a bit of talent. So, um, so Jeff White. Uh, and I think he, he sort of, he was a, a recruiting coup that was really important at the time. From my perspective, we we hadn't been doing all that well, and um, and getting him back into the side reinvigorated us.
1: And Jeff Farmer came in about the yep. same time as well, mm. and that was yeah, that was enormous. That, that I don't bet on football because I find it uh, costs me too much emotionally. Um, so why? I burn money as well, but the one time I wanted to bet on football was after the '97 season. You could see in those last few games we were building into something, and that was the year to put a lot of money on Melbourne to make the finals the next year. And I think we went from 14th to fourth, and that was Jeff White. It was Jeff Farmer coming in, uh, and it was real excitement.
0: Thank you for your time today, Ian. We really appreciate it. Uh, your book is called Between the Flags. Could you please tell all of our listeners again uh, where they can find it?
1: Sure. Well, it's at the Demon Shop. It's at Readings, the Avenue Bookstore, Morris Books, News Extra Ashburton, Collins Booksellers in Shepparton, Bookish in Bendigo. And I think that's – have I done the lot? I reckon that's the
0: lot. Yeah, I think so. And uh, between the Flags 57com uh, is a it- – yeah, a- for those a- who
1: are in more interstate or uh, areas of the country, they can't get to a bookshop. It's at between the flags 57.com.au.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you again for your time, Ian. We really do appreciate it. And uh, go demons.
1: Yeah, go Absolutely. Go, Dees. go Dees.